Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Schrum, the Warshaw Professor of Politics at USC Dornsife, the director of the Center for the Political Future. I'm here with Mike Murphy, the co-director of the Center, for our first bully pulpit of the second semester, the politics of the Supreme Court, from RBG to Amy Coney Barrett. I want to introduce our panelists, Ralph Neese, Senior Counsel on Voting Rights at the Century Foundation. He's directed two dozen national campaigns that strengthen the nation's major civil rights laws going all the way back to the Reagan and Bush administration, even before that. He's a spring 2022 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. His course is called Democracy at Risk. What happened and where do we go from here? It's taught Mondays from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Interested students can register on our website. Todd Purdom is a veteran political journalist. He's written for The Atlantic. He was a senior writer for Politico, a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and one of the great New York Times reporters. He's teaching a course in Dornsife this semester, Media and Message, Great Races from the Senate to the White House, on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 2 p.m. to 3.20, and it's already filled up. Amy Turk is the CEO of the Downtown Women's Center, which deals with homeless women on Skid Row. She's a spring 2022 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. Her course, Solutions to Homelessness, through a racial and gender equity lens, will be taught Wednesdays from 3.30 p.m. to 4.50 and begins on March 2nd. Interested students can register on our website. I'm going to start with a question I didn't anticipate asking when I was putting this all together. Were you surprised by the Supreme Court's decision yesterday denying former President Trump's attempt to use executive privilege to block disclosure of records related to the January 6th insurrection. There was only one dissenter, Clarence Thomas. But for the other conservatives, what the former president was asking just seemed a step too far. Am I right or wrong about that? Ralph, you want to start? Yes, I think uh, uh, I was mildly surprised at the only one vote. Uh, But in light of 2020 and subsequent uh, decisions, both at the Supreme Court and elsewhere, they, of course, came down time and again uh, against the uh, position of Donald Trump. Although executive privilege and protecting documents is a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, But I I, I have a hunch that there are certain Trump issues uh, where the court's going to be pretty united. Uh, in terms of how far he's gone and the difference between the Supreme Court and the executive branch and legislative branch and, 
think the Supreme Court is in a position now of basically having a veto over everything. But I had a thought uh, earlier today. Uh, I'm not sure, this is just a personal opinion, obviously, that the Supreme Court is especially enamored of Donald Trump. Uh, they uh, are certainly grateful that he gave them a supermajority, uh, which we'll be talking about in uh, a short amount of time. Uh, but I'm not sure in terms of policy, in terms of where they want to go in jurisprudence, the decisions they wanted to decide, I'm not sure he's relevant anymore. And he might be an embarrassment that they don't need. By the way, I should have said that we're going to do audience questions at about 20 of or quarter of, put them in the chat, uh, and we'll be able to ask them then. Uh, who, who wants to pick up on that? Let me chime in a bit, Bob, because I, I agree with Ralph. I think sometimes people, particularly left to center, assume that conservatives and Trump are always married. To the extent there's a marriage, you know, it's, it's one of political convenience because he, quote, won. But he's not a classic conservative. And while, while we have a lot of conservative appointees on the, on the court, uh, it doesn't mean they're necessarily Trump partisans. I, I really agree with Ralph about this. So on, on the, you know, executive pri- privilege is its own kind of thorny issue. Um, and presidents recently have been trying to assert it even, even more. But I think this thing is pretty open and shut. And the court does have a political antenna. And I'm sure they're quite disproving uh, of, of January 6th and other things. So I was actually not surprised. And I was happy to see it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Ronald Reagan did not invoke executive privilege during the Iran-Contra investigations, uh, and the Supreme Court in U.S. v. Nixon, relating to the release of the Nixon tapes, denied that the president had any privilege to hold on to those tapes. He had to turn them over. Todd, do you have any reaction? Well, that's, I was going to cite the Nixon case, Bob, actually. I think that's, that's relevant to the situation here. And I think also the longstanding doctrine that we only have one president at a time is relevant. And the court is basically holding, it it didn't have a a rationale for its decision yesterday, but um, it's really the the duty and the privilege of the current president to assert executive privilege, not the former president. And I think that that's become a rather established uh, pattern. So yeah, like like Mike and Ralph, I wasn't especially surprised. And and I think that Mike's point is very well taken that uh, as Trump himself has said, his appointees have more than once disappointed him on narrow partisan questions, beginning with uh, their refusal to countenance his arguments about the election. Amy, do you have anything on this? Yeah, well, I know you're going to get more into is the court more partisan or more activist. But I guess, you know, just comforted from yesterday's decision that, that, you know, some things have potentially gone too far and that the court can decide in that way. Seems like a good move. Yeah, well, there's that there are some guardrails. That, that they're not just a ward committee doing the bidding of one political actor. Now, more broadly, and I want to move on to this question, the court has made a whole series of decisions in recent years, ranging from striking down campaign finance reform, and they look like they're going to go even further on that from the case they heard yesterday, to upholding the Texas abortion law, at least for now, that have broken with years and sometimes decades of precedent. Critics have assailed the court for its apparently partisan decision on vaccine mandates, and Roe v. Wade, now in its 49th year, may not survive to see 50. 
Are we witnessing a judicial revolution? And how different is that from what's happened with the Supreme Court in the past? You know, judicial revolution is in the eye of the beholder. You know, <laughs> movement in one direction or the other will immediately be, and it's kind of a pejorative term. Uh, there's no question there's been, with these appointments, a conservative, more strict constitutionalist uh, swing on the court. You just look at the personalities, who they are. There have been surprises, there always are, but fen- fundamentally the court has swung to the right. Uh, and remember, for all these issues that tend to have a consensus on one side, you know, a campaign finance reform, quote unquote, again, in the eye of the beholder is a good idea. There's also a, a, an argument against it from a pure, forget about Trump conservative point of view about free speech and regulation and all that. So I kind of agree with the premise of the question that there's been a change, a shift in the power dynamic and ideology of the court, but I wouldn't call it a revolution either way, even when the court became more liberal in the 70s. Ralph, I think I might be a little bit uh, stronger about this particular point. Uh, We have been witnessing a revolution. And sad to say, conservative ideologues have won. This is the most conservative court, radically conservative court, in 90 years, going back to the Lochner era in the first part of the 20th century. Bob, you named a bunch of issues that we're going to be addressing that have already been uh, adversely decided from my particular point of view. I expect adverse decisions with respect to the environment, worker rights, other reproductive rights. I expect them in a number of areas, health care. This is a court with an extraordinary reactionary jurisprudence. But Bob, I want to just take two minutes here, if I may. You and I were present at the birth of the revolution. 1982, we were working with Senator Kennedy and Senator Dole on the Voting Rights Act extension, a grand compromise. Leading the opposition was John Roberts, who wrote 25 memos criticizing the Voting Rights Act extension going through Congress. He lost 95 to 8, 389 to 23, but he lost only temporarily. 25, 26 years later, the Voting Rights Act was extended 98 to nothing in the Senate. And I'm bringing up a little bit of this because of what happened in the Senate last night. But it's a larger point. He was able to do Citizens United, the Voting Rights Act, uh, gut in 2013, the Voting Rights Act weakening in 2021, which was the Dole Compromise. They are in a position now on all of these issues where they can change the law. As they said when they founded the Federalist Society in 1982, Bob, when we were meeting with Bob Toll, when what they said was, we can't change the law in Congress, the civil rights laws, social laws. We have to change the jurisprudence. We've got to get the presidents who appoint the right people. They have those six people. When I was with Senator Brooke in the leadership conference, we had William Rehnquist way on the right. We now have six conservative justices to his right. This is a conservative court. It's got to be addressed. I'm sure we'll be talking about possible reforms and what the future has in store for us. Let me do a follow-up here. It's actually kind of a two-part follow-up. Todd, if the court does overturn or substantially roll back Roe v. Wade, 
Is that likely to have an impact in the midterm elections? Well, I think it's it will have an impact. But uh, of course, one of the things that Republicans are not too candid about, in a sense, if for the past 49 years, uh, in Roe versus Wade, they've had a brilliant issue, one that keeps their base energized, mm-hmm. keeps their people excited. And, and often it has seemed in the whole abortion debate that they don't really want an end to abortion. They want the issue to be a bloody shirt that they can wave all the time as a political argument. So the other thing that's complicated is uh, we have seen in, in various elections, including the 2016 election when Hillary Clinton tried to make this point, um, it's not always so clear that voters are focused on, on the Supreme Court as, a, as an issue uh, in elections, particularly if, if the court's at risk of changing its composition because of new presidential appointees. So I don't know. I, I, it's really hard for me to predict how that would cut exactly in the midterms, but but um, it, it certainly could energize um, Democratic voters, whether it would be enough to counter the historical uh, pattern that the president's party usually loses seats in a midterm. I don't know. Amy, do you want to weigh in on this at all? Yeah, I mean, either way, it just seems like it would galvanize both sides by far. And, in, you know, the question of judicial revolution, I don't know if revolution is, is the term, but we're certainly seeing a court that will you know, potentially change the next 50 to 100 years and in, in how we vote and who gets to vote or who gets marginalized out of voting. Um, you know, just all these little subtle things that could really just, um, you know, further disenfranchise populations that are already disenfranchised, things that worry me, especially in, you know, working with populations experiencing homelessness, which is my day-to-day work. Bob, I just want to say that I do think there have been obviously times in American history when the court has been a polarizing institution, when it's been at odds with the executive branch or prevailing public sentiment. I mean, in the 1930s, as Ralph pointed out, the nine old men that FDR dismissed on the Supreme Court were out of sync with popular opinion, were out of sync with congressional and executive action. But I think there's something in the modern era. If we go back to the Bush versus Gore decision of 2000, I think for many people, that was the beginning of a more nakedly partisan, uh, overtly divisive era in Supreme Court politics, um, a, a decision that the court itself said would have no binding precedent on the future, and it just wanted to resolve that, that election. But I, I think for a lot of court watchers, a lot of people, th- that was a kind of a, an impor- a very important transformative moment in their attitude about whether the court is an institution that floats above the, the day-to-day of politics or is, in fact, you know, just reflective of, of politics like everything else. Yeah, let's take another aspect of that. You mentioned Bush v. Gore. Ralph mentioned John Roberts, the memos he wrote, uh, which ultimately proved unpersuasive to Ronald Reagan, who signed the extension of the Voting Rights Act. But the chief justice has apparently been concerned about the court's legitimacy. And he now even finds himself in the minority at times with people to the right of him outvoting him. How much does the image and credibility of the court matter? Or is it now just another institution that reflects the profound polarization of our society? It's the latter. I mean, we have now corrupted every institution with tribalism. You know, it used to be you sit and think about the constitutional argument that the court's struggling with. And Roe v. Wade's a good example of that. That's gone. The court's either on our side, defined as pro-choice or pro-life, or they're not. There's no argument anymore. Uh, and so, yeah, now, now the, there's just a rooting interest. Uh, from either side. And of course, we're under an equation of I'm right, you're evil. 
So motives are immediately suspect and, and all that. So the court, you know, and it's been a long slide when the Bork nomination turned into a political mudslinging contest. It set a precedent that got followed by both sides. And now, now we fight over the court like it's a congressional race. Uh, and I, I think that's a very hard bunch of toothpaste to get back in the tube, which is a problem. And, you know, I give Trump a lot of blame for this to really take it to a crescendo. But now it is every time you don't get your outcome, the other, the, it, it's illegitimate. So the court's fixed. So the court's illegitimate. So they apport these. They appoint justices only do what their sponsoring politicians think when, you know, conservative justices are not hard to predict, nor are liberal, more activist justices. So I, I think we've lost a lot. I think the court's been dragged right into it institutionally. Ralph? Bob, a, a quick point on, on, uh, on, on the court and, and, and political battles and jurisprudence issues. Uh, some people forget that back in 1968 to 72, there were eight Supreme Court nominations. Four of them were defeated. This has always been a political issue going back to 1797 when uh, uh, John Rutledge was defeated because of his jurisprudence. But with respect to John Roberts, I happen to believe that John Roberts, Mitch McConnell, and Donald Trump have done more damage to democracy over the last uh, 5, 10, 15 years than I think three other people in government. But John Roberts is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He is a strategist. He's an incrementalist. He wants to give the impression that it's an institution above politics. But he is a partisan to the core, especially on election issues, on partisan issues like voting rights and campaign finance reform. But that vote on affordable health care, that did so much for him in terms of independence uh, and and the, the role of the Supreme Court. But that was an aberration. He's going to be different than Gorsuch and uh, Thomas uh, and others, but he's got a goal, and he's going to get to that goal over time. But it's just an incrementalist approach, in part to preserve the prestige of the court, which is plummeting, by the way, especially after Roe versus Gore, uh, excuse me, Roe versus Wade, and it's down, I think, to about 40 percentage points, a drop of 13 or 14 percentage points in just a couple months. Todd, how much does that matter, the credibility of the court and what people think of it? I think it's what Mike said. I mean, we've trashed all our institutions, the court, the Congress, the presidency, the church, uh, you name it, uh, the media, the media, uh, you know, right up there. with, uh, and, and so there's just diminished trust in all the vital institutions of government. And I think if Donald Trump's incumbency showed anything, it showed that the resiliency and the sort of threshold strength of our institutions was a little bit weaker than some of us would have liked to hope they were. In 2020, local election officials, Trump supporters, it must be said in many cases, did the right thing and saved the election by the hair of its chinny chin chin. But I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in 2024 if the progress of these uh, restrictive voting laws, which is one thing. But you know, Congress hasn't been paying very much attention at the moment to the changing in the counting procedures that's happening in states around the country. And that, in some ways, is the greater threat at the moment that uh, when, when it comes time to count the votes, there'll be overt partisans in charge who simply uh, reject an outcome they don't agree with. 
So I think it's very damaging if, if the institutions of our democracy are not respected. And the court in particular, because it was seen in Robert's phrase uh, as a place that called balls and strikes. I don't think he actually meant that when he said it, but it was a very clever answer. But it was how people saw the court for a long time, at least up until, I think, you know, we talked about the 30s, and there was obviously tremendous resistance when the court came down with Brown v. Board of Education. So it's, it's always been a political issue. But people have seen it in a different way than they've seen more political institutions. Now, Amy, you see the impact of court decisions on people every day. For example, on the women you serve at the Downtown Women's Center when the court strikes down a national vaccine mandate. I'm sure they don't think much about this, but what kind of impact does it have? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's that they don't really think about the decisions of the Supreme Court, but it's another institution that doesn't really factor in their voice or, you know, makes decisions that deeply impact their access to basic needs. And, you know, there's not one story of a woman that we serve at Downtown Women's Center whose homelessness is not a direct result of a failed policy or a, a policy that actually probably worked as it was intended. Um, but as far as the court, if you, you know, take anything related to voting rights, uh, in California, we have early voting, um, you mail-in voting, you know, multiple access points to voting. That certainly supports the voice of people experiencing homelessness because there's more options. Uh, but any states that now have the liberty to erode those options or not grow those options for uh, allowing voters' voice uh, certainly impacts people experiencing homelessness. Um, you know, states that might require having a physical address, obviously, discounts 600,000 600, people across the nation are experiencing homelessness on any given night. So voting laws really show if you value that person or not. Um, you know, the chilling case in, in Texas uh, related to abortion, SB8. Um, if you think about women or people who um, are pregnant who are also in a domestic violence situation, which domestic violence is one of the main drivers into homelessness, um, especially through a gendered lens. Um, you think, you know, perhaps someone um, might want to pursue an abortion, but their abuser can now sue them and has one more tool in their arsenal to, to abuse. Um, these decisions certainly impact people experiencing homelessness. But there's also been really good protections, you know, many that Ralph has worked on himself. Um, you know, Adults with Disabilities Act, Civil Rights Act, their housing, the Affordable Care Act was a game changer for the women that we serve at Downtown Women's Center and all people at very low incomes who could immediately access healthcare who otherwise had to go through you know, two years of proving they were disabled enough in order to get healthcare. So of course, you know, good things. And, and just lastly, my dear friend, Nathaniel Garrett, just um, argued in front of the Supreme Court and won rights for caregivers who are in subsidized housing. Um, you know, just, so there are of course, uh, tremendous decisions that positively impact the people that I work with every day. I want to get to some possible reforms in a minute, but first I want to talk about the big argument that the Federalist Society has been making against the Madison Society for years. I guess it's not called the Madison Society anymore. It's called, what's it called, Ralph? You're talking about the American Constitution Society? Yes, yes, okay. yes. So there's a, a been a long-term argument about whether the court should follow 
what's called originalism. That is what was meant when the exact words were written or treat the constitution as a living document. Uh, in a kind of surprising decision, Justice Gorsuch, a self-proclaimed originalist, uh, held that the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex protects LGBTQ Americans. And he wrote for the court. Uh, I'm not sure the founders originally envisioned that. And I suspect that they did not foresee Supreme Court justices ruling on public health mandates, given their lack of scientific and medical qualifications. It seems doubtful to me, at least, that the Gorsuch decision would have been something he would have voted for if he was in a legislature. But beyond that, have we more generally reached the point where these competing doctrines about constitutional interpretation, originalism versus the living constitution, have simply become a cover for judicial activism in the direction of preferred policy outcomes? Well, I think, Bob, in this case, it's a fascinating question because Justice Gorsuch is also what's known as a textualist. And in this case, he was reading the words of the 1964 law, the word sex, because of sex. And uh, let's remember that that provision was put in the 1964 Civil Rights Act as a kind of malicious poison pill by a segregationist from Virginia named Judge Howard Smith who thought that it might actually doom the bill because misogynist, sexist members of Congress wouldn't want to extend protections in employment and other fields to women. Instead, it passed, it became enshrined in the law, and the early days of Title VII enforcement, that's the part of the law that deals with employment discrimination, turned out to be overwhelmingly complaints of sex discrimination, not so much racial discrimination. So I think, as you correctly say, Justice Gorsuch probably would not have voted for that provision in the law. Certainly, the people who passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I can almost guarantee you, would not have uh, adopted that policy position. But here in this case, his narrow reading of the words of the law produced a a political outcome that progressives applauded, um, which is to say that these protections extend to gay and lesbian and uh, transgender people. So it is a perverse I mean, it, it, it depends on, you know, whose ox is being gored here, which method of constitutional interpretation is more favorable. And, and it, it, Justice Gorsuch, in doing this, in adopting this approach, actually echoed uh, a view that uh, Justice Scalia had taken in an earlier case uh, in which he said the word sex means sex. And so it's, it's a kind of a, you know, it's a mixed bag, I guess I would say. By the way, please read the poster behind Todd, an idea whose time has come on the 1964 Civil Rights Act to hear more about what he just talked about. <laughs> well, he's, he's written a terrific book outlining how that bill passed. And it passed, by the way, we have to say, and, you know, uh, Mike knows better than anyone, it passed 73 to 27 with 27 Republican votes, and it could not have passed without the overwhelming support of Republicans. Those were the days. <laughs> well, you worked for a Republican in the I day. sure did. And we had bipartisanship through 1994. After Newt Gingrich came in and the anti-government revolution, things started changing and they're cascading now, unfortunately. So, Mike, you're like me, political. I'm, we're certainly not judicial experts. A hack is the word, but yes. yes. I knew you were going to say hacks because you want to advertise hacks on tap. An outstanding podcast, but go ahead, Bob. (laughs) Do you think these competing doctrines are just a cover for 
the results orientation that most of these justices feel most of the time. They look for a way to get the result they want. No, I don't. I think they've been contorted a lot, but I still think they're fundamentally uh, a grounding point of view. But in the current world, I I do think they're stretched and, and, and used in a somewhat perverse manner. I mean, what happens is, you know, it, it used to be conservatives that quote Buckley would stand in front of change, you know, yelling stop. That was the old classic definition. And as the court changed a lot, the pushback was, oh, we have an activist liberal court, activist liberal courts everywhere. That was like a rallying cry. And now to roll things back, the conservatives appear to be the activists. They're the ones threatening change to the status quo. So if 20 years ago you were a changer, the change was great. Now the activism that you might have liked for, quote, your side, now the rollback is terrible activism from the other side. Radical, all you know, we get in all the hot language. So, but I do think fundamentally there's still some alignment to that that idea. But I, I you know, it's it. Both sides want their way, and the court has become more political as the tribes of America can't agree on it. Yeah, Amy, you mentioned uh, how important the Affordable Care Act was for homeless people. It survived five to four. It survived by the margin of one vote. And Chief Justice Roberts angered a lot of conservatives by voting to uphold it, even though he upheld it on different grounds than than had been argued by the Obama administration. And in fact, created the possibility of using the decision for more conservative purposes later. Does it worry you that something as fundamental as that survives by one vote? Of course it does. And, you know, the changes for people experiencing homelessness only uh, happened in states that that expanded Medicaid, too, so of course it wasn't across the nation. Um, but I have I started my career as you know direct directly working with people experiencing homelessness as a, what's called a case manager. I have walked people through the Medi-Cal application process, taking years, knowing that they needed health care yesterday. Um, and with the ACA, that arduous process just went away, and you can get people health insurance today. Uh, it's, you know, just game changing, of course, for anyone's health um, and life trajectory, really. Um, so yeah, that that is still on the line uh, is, is terrifying. Nationwide, of course, California is doing some work to expand who qualifies for Medi-Cal, um, you know, if you're undocumented or um, incomes, income limit changing. Yeah. So let's talk about what might be done about this and what could be done, what's practical. Uh, There have been reform proposals to, for example, enlarge the court or set term limits for justices. Ralph, is there any prospect that any of them will pass? And what do you think of them on the merits? The easy ones, of course, are ethics reform and monitoring that and transparency, that type of thing. With respect to the term limits, uh, something to think about. Uh, I, I'm really not sure uh, how much good that would do, other than perhaps making sure that we've got a Supreme Court fight every other year or so. Uh, <laughs> now, I am concerned, however, about the average length of a justice's term now is 26, 27 years. I can understand why, for many different reasons, people are addressing that issue. 
The most controversial one, I think, is probably, of course, with respect to enlarging the court. And I'm a process conservative, uh, and uh, it took me a, a long time to come to this, and it probably has been the last three or four years that I've come to the conclusion that Larry Tribe, our friend, and Judge Nancy Gertner and others are correct. If we do not expand the court, we're going to have this present six in for years, maybe decades. And all of these rights and liberties that we thought were ours forever could disappear overnight. This is a radical court. I think we, the previous speakers were correct about what they were saying and the judicial philosophy and results-oriented but there's a lot of results-orientedness in these six justices. And we're in for a very bad period of time. And I think the only way to help a strong democracy to survive is we're going to have to reform the court. Anybody have a response to that? You know, I'll, I'll be the goat on that. I'm for some of the, uh, the transparency reforms. I think they're badly needed. And there's a case for the age limit. Uh, you know, that was not written in a time where people lived to 101. Uh, but I, I think the, I think it's a banana republic move to increase the court size. So, it, you know, it's kind of an allied argument to the filibuster. You're not getting your way. You don't like the court. Uh, don't elect more senators or a president to a point. Uh, inflate it and add two more. You know, we had that period in American history. We used to print Senate seats. Uh, that way, when the country was expanding, one party would say, aha, we're, we're breaking the Dakota territory into create new two new senators. And and what happens is you get an arms race. OK, so we add two. And then next time the Republicans around, they add two. And we're going we're gonna to have a new legislature at the end of it. So inflating the court to hack around or short circuit the fact you don't have the political power on the court you want to have because you haven't gotten enough votes and enough elections under the system that exists, I think it's a cheat. So I'm a, I guess I'm a, I'm a process reactionary because uh, uh, I'm troubled by that. I think it's uh, exactly the wrong kind of... Well, I have a quick response. Sure. In terms of the way we're talking about originalism uh, and the history of our court and, and, and our republic, of course, Abraham Lincoln uh, changed the court composition, as did Thomas Jefferson as did John Adams and Andrew Jackson. As many have said, we're facing the gravest internal threat to our democracy since the Civil War. It's been exacerbated because we have a a leader in the Republican side, Mitch McConnell, who has stolen two seats in the last five years from the Democrats. 11 months before Barack Obama's term was over, Scalia died. And we had Merrick Garland as the nominee. No hearing, no votes. Unprecedented in our history. Several years later, we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg die in the pan who said that we cannot do in a presidential year a presidential nomination from the opposite party. We've got to wait until there's the next president. He wants Amy Barrett in one month before the election while votes are being counted to be confirmed. We've never had a situation like this in the history of our country, and I think we have no option. There's risk, but the risks are far greater about losing the strength of our democracy. And Mike, do you want to go back 
time. No, no, we, 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 we just disagree. I mean, what I say to my liberal friends is if you don't like Mitch McConnell, win more Senate elections. But if it becomes hard for people to vote, then maybe you can't win the Senate yeah, election. You know, you it's can't. funny. Yes, but and th- this is an extremely unfashionable opinion. I was an early and public Republican critic of the Georgia law. The Georgia law is looser on absentee votes than the New York law is. Um, I'm for a federal standard for absentee votes. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm crazy about keeping these COVID reforms where we send everybody a ballot automatically. I kind of like the an easy opt-in without a lot of ID requirements or any of that. But I don't think some of the voter ID laws that we're arguing about now even though I don't approve of most, and I, I think many should go away, I don't think they're going to have a huge material effect on the outcome. They're maliciously intended, so there is a moral reason to oppose them and repeal them and condemn those who support them. But as a political mechanic, I don't think having nine drop boxes instead of 30, well, it will have a cooling effect. I, I think it'll be somewhat immaterial. I, I was hoping the president, and, you know, he sent some signals in his press conference, would immediately get to the Electoral Count Act, which is, doesn't solve the whole problem, but it solves one of the huge immediate problems, that the Electoral College system is incredibly antiquated and very vulnerable to bad actors. So that's got to be done immediately, and I think there's a bipartisan consensus to do that right away. And then if the shame on the Republicans if they couldn't make a deal for a slightly scaled-back law on some of the stuff the Democrats kept adding uh, to their... Uh, voting rights stuff. Though under Manchin, another villain, who I think has been a bit of a hero as an ideological conservative, uh, pulled it back to something I probably would have voted for if I was in the Senate. So I guess that's that's a long way of saying, I think it's a moral disaster, but I think electorally, uh, the, the enacted restrictions, there's some proposed stuff that's worth, uh, probably won't have a material effect on the election. I'm not endorsing them, but I think there's a bit of the, the moral justified opposition to them turns into an electoral panic that the election will no longer be legitimate, which I, I don't believe is true. Todd, do you see any prospect for any of these reforms passing? Uh, not too likely. I mean, at the risk of sounding like a journalist, I agree with both Mike and Ralph. I, I don't think there's anything <laughs> magic about the number nine, and it has been changed throughout history. But I, to change it now, in, for the reason that it would, Democrats want to change it, smacks of changing the rules because you can't win in the game the way the rules are now. And that doesn't seem fair to me. Uh, just it doesn't seem like the normal American way. Um, whether there should be uh, term limits or age limits is another question. Those kinds of uh, reforms might have a greater chance of passing. There's nothing about life tenure that is magic. Um, there's all sorts of reasons uh, you know, in modern life that uh, life tenure might might not be a good idea. But uh, it, with the Senate as narrowly divided as it is, and as we saw yesterday, uh, there there's not an impulse to change, uh, even to do something as modest as return to the true talking filibuster that prevailed in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act passed and the people had to actually stand up and make their case a la Jimmy Stewart. Um, if we if we can't do that, it, it, the prospect of getting sixty votes to do these other things seems remote to me. Ralph, you had your hand up. <laughs> Thanks for noticing. With respect to uh, these uh, thirty-four state laws that nineteen Republican-controlled legislatures passed, uh, Georgia is particularly uh, uh, bad. Someone mentioned drop boxes in Fulton County. 
uh, surrounding Atlanta. There were 93 drop boxes in the last election. The Republican state legislature and the county people cut it back to four. That's thousands and thousands of votes. They have changed the law with respect to, with respect to counting the votes. I think it was Mike, maybe it was Todd before about election subversion. The combination of election subversion and voter suppression will disenfranchise perhaps millions of people of color, disabled people, older Americans in particular. And the last thing, Bob, I'm going to say is what I said about John Roberts. He unleashed these voter suppression laws in 2013. They had an impact in 2016. Those 34 state laws that were passed in the last year, perhaps none of them would have passed if we had a Voting Rights Act. He direct line between what John Roberts did in 2013 and 2021. We have got to acknowledge that. We've got to do something about that. And it's in 19 different states, and it could decide the election, and particularly the election subversion, making sure people not only can vote, but have that vote count. Just a small footnote on the drop boxes. I would prefer a world that had 50 drop boxes. But remember, voters don't have to use drop boxes. Where We have Georgia's loosest absentee ballot law in their history. Still, you know, New York, Democrat-run state, far more restrictive. New York ought to change theirs. It's, it's a ridiculous law. It's also impossible to get on the damn ballot in New York. But my point being, with the new absentee laws, you can vote that way. You can show up the old-fashioned way and actually vote. There's some early voting. Uh, I'm more worried about the vote-counting corruption as far as having a material danger than I am the number of drop boxes, although there's no reason to reduce them from 30. uh, Ralph had the right number, somewhere in the mid-30s to four in Fulton, which is an urban central Atlanta county. So, you know, I'm, I'm on the cheering thing, but as an election mechanic, it's not like Dropbox voters are now totally disenfranchised. There are you know, not that many Dropbox voters, but there will be fewer now. That is true, but they have other options. Amy, are your, are your uh, folks inclined to vote? Yeah, as long as there's access. So Downtown Women's Center is a voting place. Um, we did a pop-up voting, and we've been you know, on the official registrar as a voting place for a while now. And that proximity to where people actually live is what makes a difference. You know, so if there was a drop box on this corner, people would use it. If there was transportation to voting places, people would use it. Um, you know, we work with folks who literally are so physically disabled, it's really hard to move. Um, so you really need to keep in mind those physical limitations or folks that don't have cars or folks who need education who don't know that you don't act, you know, if you don't have an ID, we can still help you vote. Or if you don't have a physical address, we can still help you vote. So it's about access. and technically can you vote if you know your community only has one drop box of course you can vote but when you see those access options eroding and taken away what i what i see is that there's a lot the psychology behind that is like well my voice does not matter so why should i vote even if you can technically still vote let, let me turn to one other suggestion for dealing with the court Ruth Bader Ginsburg brushed aside suggestions that she resign when Barack Obama still could have appointed her successor. Uh, the result, she's replaced by someone ideologically very different from her. Now progressives are pushing 
Justice Steve Breyer to resign so that Joe Biden can select a new justice before any potential GOP Senate takeover. Two questions. Do you think there's any prospect that that will actually happen? And what does it say about where we are as a country that people are pushing that idea and pushing it very overtly? Todd, you want to start? Well, I I find it distasteful, personally. I mean, you can make your private argument about it, but there's this group headed by... uh headed by a former Hillary Clinton aide whose name is escaping me in this moment of uh, senioritis. Uh, you all know who I mean. And, and they, they used to work in the Justice Department, actually. And his name is escaping me as well. Yeah, but he worked on Hillary's campaign as well. And they, 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 yeah. they take uh, sound trucks around, you know, they're, they're overtly encouraging Justice Breyer to retire. And I think the, 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 the problem with this sort of thing is it just increases the notion First of all, the Republicans, Mitch McConnell would figure out a way right now to block uh, the confirmation of a Biden appointee. And I, I, I guarantee you that he would figure out some way to slow it down and, and, and arguing that the midterm elections are only months away and we have to wait until December. And now he might not have the procedural power in the Senate to do that as long as the Democrats have this narrow majority. But there would be an effort to do that. So that that's another g- delegitimizing effect. It seems to me that one argument that's been made over the years that could actually be very useful is the last time a, a member of the Supreme Court had any real overt electoral political experience was Justice O'Connor from Arizona. And, and I think it's pretty clear that her experience as a practical politician in, in many ways was to the good in her jurisprudence on the court. And, uh, you know, President Clinton came close to nominating Bruce Babbitt, the former governor of Arizona, when he, in fact, gave the seat to Justice Ginsburg. And, and we now have a Supreme Court that's entirely made up of former law professors, lawyers, appellate lawyers, uh, and, and there's nobody, chief among them, Chief Justice Roberts on the Supreme Court, who has actual political experience. And I think that led to a certain, on the one hand, naivete, and on the other, sort of ideological uh, arrogance in his decisions on cases like Shelby uh, County versus Holder on the voting rights question and Citizens United on the campaign finance question. I don't think a practical politician would have made those decisions in the same way because he would have understood that he wasn't operating in some hothouse theory. He was operating in the world where real voters and real people live, and his decisions seem naive in that regard. Ralph, Steve Breyer? I love Steve Breyer, and I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't think it's uh, productive to have these campaigns uh, that are going on. Uh, I, I think Stephen Breyer is very proud uh, and still doing very well. Uh, if you ask me in my gut, would I have preferred Ruth Bader Ginsburg resigning uh, earlier? And would I prefer Stephen Breyer to resign soon? Given the real politics, given the game the other side is playing, the hardball, the results-oriented takeover of the judiciary, especially the Supreme Court, I think this argument has to be taken seriously and I regretfully say I hope he does resign in time for President Biden to nominate somebody. I know Steve Breyer. I do not think he will be resigning. I think that he, you know, I worked with him for years, uh, and I think that's that's a very doubtful proposition, and I actually suspect the campaign to get him to do it is counterproductive. I agree. So I, I don't think that'll happen. And I want to get to a big question that actually goes beyond the argument, Ralph, that you and Mike were having about these voting restrictions. The court refused to intervene in 2020 to help Donald Trump overturn the election. 
what if in 2024, and we don't have an electoral college reform, what if in 2024, the Congress simply votes to accept electors from states that have been carried by the other candidate? In other words, someone carries a state, but there's a rival slate of electors, Congress votes to accept it. Would the court do anything about that? Or would they stay out of that as much as they stayed out of 2020? Let me make sure I get your hypothetical here, Bob. You're saying Oklahoma votes for Bob Shrum for president, not Donald Trump, but a Republican. Unlikely, but yes. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Well, this is right up for the early part where Napoleon had nuclear subs and we're all speaking French. But again, so basically the Republican Congress on a partisan basis rejects electors that reflect the actual outcome of the vote. Yes. The court has to act. Do you think they would, Ralph? Mike, yeah, I think you were making the arguments about the electoral college and the necessity uh, for uh, addressing that and trying to prevent this kind of situation we're talking about. Uh, if that doesn't happen, and I do think you were right about there's a good chance because it benefits both parties to have some clarity with respect to that situation. But I'm, I'm really not sure in light of that statute exactly what the court would do, although I'm inclined to think they would have to do something. Anybody else have a take on that? No, I agree. I think they would feel, I mean, this, even though the court said Bush v. Gore doesn't have a precedent, the court felt there was a requirement for establishing order as the final arbiter. Uh, and I think if, if, this, if there were a dispute of like the one you suggest, the court would feel uh, uh, an obligation to weigh in and say that we have the last word. Brian Fallon is the name I was trying to summon up. Yes. But anyway. I, mean, I guess I have one more question, and I'm, I'm, I'm going too long, but I, I'm fascinated by this discussion. Where do we see the court in five or ten years? Sometimes prediction can be very, very hard. Where do we see it in five or ten years? I don't know. You know, maybe we'll have a reformation. Interesting poll in the, the uh, NBC News does a, a legitimate poll, and they show the Trump power starting to slip in the primary world. And politics works, works in cycles. There are reformations, there are ebbs and flows. But as our culture becomes more fractured, and our politics becomes more tribal. Those tend to be self-reinforcing things. So my guess is, you know, maybe the court will be a TV show with applause meters live on the Internet. Bob, you've known me for 40 years, and I'm a congenital optimist. But I think (laughs) as dispirited as I've ever been in my adult life, uh, if there isn't a court reform, if it isn't expanding the court, I'm afraid we're going to see a cataclysmic change in dozens of well-settled precedents in many different areas that will undermine democracy, even more than it's being undermined much more now. Todd, people were really critical of the court in Bush v. Gore for intervening, and a lot of uh, legal scholars really went after the court for doing it. If the shoe's on the other foot in the hypothetical I describe, do you think it would be right or wrong for the court to intervene? Well, this comes back to the question about, you know, whose ox is being gored and the people who uh, who thought the court was inappropriately activist in intervening in that case might think it was blessedly activist if it uh, intervened to salvage uh, what seemed to be a legitimate victory that was trying to be overturned by uh, shenanigans at the state level or in Congress or or because, as everyone has said, of the vagaries of the Electoral Count Act. 
So I think that's, you know, it, it, it all depends on where you sit. But I mean, one thing, Bob, in preparing for my class, which of course is your class, uh, I was reading the other day, and I, I guess I might have known, but I don't think I remembered that in 1968, when uh, LBJ nominated Abe Fortas to be the chief justice, it was the first time that the Senate had ever held a confirmation hearing for a chief justice nominee. That's barely, you know, uh, 50 years ago. So we, we are a much more, the whole game is much more intensely partisan and played, played as all the rest of politics is played. And, and that's probably been a losing proposition overall. Yeah, so we become litigious about the composition of the court. There somehow or there seems to be a certain irony. <laughs> it's the ultimate postmodern outcome. We Now the court is irrelevant. It's the packing of the court to determine the outcome is what's relevant. And, you know, having any open-mindedness about the arguments about constitutional law takes a back seat to making sure it's a Boston Red Sox court, not a New York Yankees court. Hey, we're almost out of time and we have questions, Bob. Should we move on? Yeah, go to the questions. Question one is from Michael Rogers. Is it even possible? And if so, what would it take for the court to be viewed by most Americans as a non-political institution? Right or wrong, many of us grew up viewing the court in that perspective. What will it take? You know, related to Bob's question about the future is when will the people get so frustrated that their voices are gerrymandered out? A majority of our votes are not are not counted. I mean, our votes are counted, but our voices are not counted. So if the people really do take this seriously, that, that's my hope. That's my only hope for a change. All our institutions are only as good as our country, our people, and our culture. So, all right. Number two, this, oh, a good one here. I think this is Bob in the shadows writing as anonymous attendee. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure it's not Bob, and I bet Bob will make that point here quickly. But it's an interesting question. Regarding voting rights, where is the balance between access and, number one, secure elections, and, number two, an appropriately informed and knowledgeable electorate? Could we have better access but, parentheses, for the lack of a better word, lower quality voter turnout? So basically, we're channeling back to the founding fathers, say, hey, you sure you want to let everybody run the country? There are a lot of drunks over in the tavern. So we're set up the House of Representatives for them. But uh, so it's kind of a kind of a real throwback here. And I'm curious anybody's reaction. My view is everybody should vote. And uh, that's why we call it democracy. Mm -hmm. More democracy means more democracy means more democracy. I I think making that argument overtly would be a complete loser. Uh, I think there are attempts to restrict the franchise, but they're always disguised. Uh, people say it's to prevent cheating. It's to prevent voter fraud. I was all interested that they found all this voter fraud in Florida, uh, in that retirement community. And it turned out it was people who were voting. It, it consisted of people who were voting several times for, for Donald Trump. Uh, but I don't think there's much voter fraud in the country. And I, how would we, what, what, what are we going to do? Establish some kind of test, civics test, to see whether or not people should be able to vote? Well, we have that. Mormons should vote, too. We elect enough of them. I, I, just to make one quick point, Amy, and then all yours. One thing on this voter fraud deal, we do not have, to our great credit, voter, significant voter fraud in U.S. elections. We haven't for a long time. But I am worried we're going to start having some, at least a slightly higher level, 
because we've taken the COVID practice of mailing everybody an absentee ballot, and we're keeping it now. Now, the plus side is, hey, the more ballots you spray out, the more people vote. But you create a new security issue we haven't really been through. And I think the biggest solve is to get these state governments, who are impossible, to agree in a common database. Right now, I can vote absentee here and in Colorado and get away with it pretty easily because California and Colorado don't talk. There's a a multi-state compact where a lot of states do. That ought to be federalized and be everywhere. Because the way we've changed it does open the door to a little more fraud if we're not clever about how we track it with our cumbersome state governments that are still in 1965 on most voter list issues. Number one, uh, as we know, all 60 courts that decided this fraud question in 2020-21, no fraud. All the audits have showed no fraud. The studies that were done in the last 10 or 12 years, one out of every 30 million voters commits fraud. It's really rare. It's the big lie. And that, of course, is part of where we're coming from and part of what my course is going to be about. (laughs) Mike, I just want to say on that question of whether we need to have higher quality voters, uh, there was an interesting story in the Washington Post the other day about how in the teens or 20s, uh, a member of the House of Representatives had done an informal survey of how how much women read the newspaper and thought they didn't read the newspaper enough to be qualified to be voters and they shouldn't have the franchise. You know, I come back to H.L. Mencken, who said democracy is the recurrent suspicion that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. So I think, you know, the, the more people who vote, the better off it is. And they have to live with the result. Question four from Martin Dunleavy. Does the mask issue yesterday on the court, quote, unmask how uncivil the court has become? Can anything be done by the chief justice to guarantee the rights of the members' rights to participate in live sessions regardless of their health issues? Can he enforce civility and responsibility? Todd, Todd, save us. Answer that. Well, you see that both Justice Gorsuch and, and, and Justice Sotomayor, and then later Justice Roberts, issued kind of carefully worded, semi-non-denial, denial statements that this was not accurate. But um, I don't know is the answer. And, and, uh, and the statements didn't really explain why Justice Sotomayor is participating remotely. And it also didn't explain why Justice Gorsuch is the only justice not wearing a mask. So it does suggest a certain lack of collegiality. And it's almost astounding that if your colleagues needed you to do that in, in a room full of nine people, you wouldn't do it. I mean, it's like a, kind of a no-brainer. Well, and there are all sorts of mandates on the spectators who come into the court and on the lawyers who come into the court. So it's, but I don't know that the chief justice has the power to say, you got to wear a mask. Listen, this has been a very interesting discussion. I want to thank Ralph, Todd, and Amy. I want to thank my partner in crime, Mike Murphy. And I want to thank our audiences. We'll be back with another edition of The Bully Pulpit in the next couple of weeks. Thank you all very much. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future. That's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.